From an outside perspective, restaurants are the perfect getaway. Great food, inviting atmosphere, comforting environment. It's an all-around fantastic time for friends and family alike. Though it can be beautiful and enriching from the inside perspective, as a guest, one doesn't see the hardships and stressors of creating a wonderful experience. Every restaurateur goes through struggles and challenges that could make or break them. This podcast aims to explore that, pulling back the curtain and understanding what it's truly like to run these establishments as told by those who do it. I'm Justin Warner, and you're listening to Resto Talk, a podcast brought to you by Touch Bistro. Who are you and what are you doing here? Well, my name is John House. I own Black Sheep Restaurant in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I started my restaurant career in back of house, started cooking when I was 18 in Alberta. And then I went to PEI and did culinary school there. And then I did pastry school at Holland College and moved to Halifax, worked in a couple of restaurants here and then opened Black Sheep in 2015. Excellent. Do you consider yourself to be a Black Sheep in the metaphorical um, sense? I wouldn't say that I strongly identify as such, no. Great. Just curious, where did you come up with the name? Well, we just thought it was cool. We really wanted to have an animal name. We thought that was kind of neat. And, you know, maybe black sheep isn't the most original thing in the world, but there was was nothing uh, in our neck of the woods that was utilizing that. Obviously, it's in pop culture. Yeah, we thought it was kind of neat. So we just went with it. And it's been pretty good for six years. Amazing. So I'm, I'm taking a gander at your menu here and I'm seeing a lot of like global inspiration, everything from gravlocks from one corner of the earth and then literally right underneath of it, you've got kimchi and under that you've got shakshuka and then you've got brisket nachos. Can you talk to me about the global influences of your menu and how you acquired that? So I guess a little bit of a backstory, like an expansion on what I was saying. I worked at Geo in Halifax, which is in the Prince George Hotel. And that's where I met my uh, former business partner. He and I have since parted ways. So now it's just me. He and I both worked in the kitchen there. And the way that Geo operated was very much globally inspired as well. And he and I, for several years, kind of co-managed writing menus there. And that's when we decided to branch out on our own. But that's just kind of a style that I have always enjoyed. I wouldn't necessarily call it fusion. I don't really love that term. I don't think any chef does. (laughs) No, it was definitely trendy in the early 2000s. But anyhow, like I I always want to have, if we have something with a bit of a Middle Eastern flair, keep that all in one dish. And if we have something with a Korean flair, you know, we'll incorporate that into a dish. Basically pick a style and run with it. And generally it, it just pops up. I'll go to, you know, a restaurant like I was down in Atlanta a couple of years ago and then went to tons of restaurants down there because I like to eat at restaurants when I travel. It's kind of my main purpose in traveling. But obviously I came back and, you know, ate tons of biscuits and fried chicken and gravy and smoked meat and stuff like that. So we just kind of take that and turn that into a dish, like our rendition of it. And usually we'll try to throw something in there that's a little bit outside of the box. Yeah, that's basically just the food that I like to eat. I always like when people do sort of little clever plays on things on their menu. Smart. And it seems as though it's been well received. You know, you've passed that, you know, five year threshold. Yeah. We always heard that in the early days that like, you know, five years, I don't know, you, you hear a lot of sort of arbitrary statistics. Sure. Um, 95% of them fail in five years or whatever it is. I don't know. 
But yeah, we made it past that because we had a five-year lease at our original location. And then at the five-year mark, our, our lease would have been up for renewal September 2020, which is a weird time for obvious reasons. And our landlord was planning to increase the rent by almost 40% when, when it came up for renewal. And the people that own the brewery market in Halifax, where we are now, had been after us for a few years to do something down here. And the timing was just never quite right. So when basically when we got that letter from our landlord saying that our rent was going up substantially during, you know, the first, I think we probably got like six months notice. So it would have been right after we got locked down with COVID yeah. stuff. We just started looking at other options and the right opportunity landed basically in our lap. And, and we really got the COVID deal moving in here because I think our landlord, our current landlord in the new location knew if we didn't take it, it's probably going to sit vacant for a while. Yeah, I'm actually in a similar situation. I opened, well, I started developing my ramen shop where I am currently in South Dakota during actually September of 2020. And oh, wow. yeah, and we opened it in 2021. We started off really small just as a to-go operation. But I still feel as though if your head was in the right space and you're, you were able to plan there were some deals to be had in 2020 if you were looking for a lease because everyone was just scared of the future. And I think you might have, I mean, did you feel as though you were taking a risk by signing a lease in 2020? I mean, you know, there's always a risk because I'm sure as a commercial tenant of somewhere, I'm assuming you're a commercial tenant and not the building owner. Um, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. You know, you're on the hook for a lot. So there's always a risk, but I don't know. We, we had been on the go for five years and we, we were very popular, had a lot of fans in the city and beyond, I guess. So I don't know. We were pretty confident. If you think too much about it, you would just never do anything. That's kind of how I feel like, but once you're in it, well, you, you got to just keep pushing. Yeah. Somebody uh, actually stopped me on the street today and was like, so you making progress? You're spinning your wheels. And I was like, well, I haven't stopped to think about it. And they're like, well, then you're yeah. making progress, you know, like, yeah. And I feel like that's such a, a restaurateur chef mentality, you know, like, hmm. yeah, I feel like it's, and I'm not saying it's exclusive to our kind because I think other people get in like a zone or a flow state or whatever you want to call it. But I think there is this kind of weird thing in, in restaurants where, you know, you're just doing one thing at a time and marching forward and you have hard things, but then you compare them to the other things that were as hard, if not harder, and you just get through it and you do it. And like you said, if you think about it, you know, you're going to get mired and you're never going to make it anywhere. Mm -hmm. I think that would, I would go so far as to say like people that, it, I mean, I don't view myself as like achieving greatness or anything. I don't have any sort of ego about it, but like, there's just a certain type of person that will push to do something, whether it's creative or entrepreneurial or reach celebrity status. Like you kind of just need to be a little bit crazy and really just take Jump. risks and not even really think about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I do think that at least in my history of running restaurants, there is a certain level of kind of mania that you you need to be able to embrace and and mm -hmm. kind of hold on to and use it as your ally to be able to take risks and to be able to make decisions you know that are outside the box or not by the rule book because a restaurant you know is I always tell my my staff here that 
I built this to be a game. You know, the only variable is the customers. Like the food I've got so dialed in, anyone, literally anyone can make almost any dish. I've got like, you know, the seating dialed in and the way like the seating traffic works. So like the only random thing that really you have to deal with is, and the steps of service, you know, like everyone is going to be greeted, poured water, get a menu, order will be taken, bring drinks, bring food. Do you want dessert? Thank you very much. Enjoy your night. Here's the check, you know? And so every game is going to play the same, the same way. And so I've kind of tried to explain to them that, you know, obviously there are going to be outliers in this game and that's where your creativity and your ability to fix problems is going to come in hand and so you need to be able to think according to the book but also outside of the book do you find that that is the same in your kitchens Mm -hmm. this is i didn't actually even expect to bring this up or think about it but this is sort of an obscure thing that i've i learned a long time ago it's actually something uh my dad did he was a police officer and he basically for like a year and a half or something, he, I don't know, I think it was through the university in Newfoundland where I grew up. He went or may have been the university in Ontario. So anyhow, he traveled across the country to basically meet with people that were managing homicide divisions of police departments. So like really heavy stuff. And basically they were trying to profile them to find what kind of personality would would be best suited for that. So they could identify them early on in their career. Be like, Hey, you would be really good at that. This homicide stuff. Let's groom you into being good at that. That combined with another thing that he told me that he kind of tied into that somehow was that people, there are studies where people, if they make decisions basically right away or spend a lot of time mulling them over the decision that they just make on the fly is often the best decision like statistically speaking. And I just always think about that. It's like, man, you just got to think, make it move forward. And that's kind of how I've lived my life. That that was probably when I was about 17 that he told me that. And that really just resonated with me in a weird way. And I told him that like maybe a decade later and he had basically forgotten about it. But he was like, that's pretty insane that you remembered that, but fair enough. And I, but I've just been living my life like that ever since. It's like, yeah, I want to do it. We're going to do it. Yeah. You um, know, I, I think the the other side of that coin is that you also have to be able to deal with the repercussions of whatever your immediate action was. And oftentimes I find that you can, when you make an immediate decision and say we're doing it, and then say it doesn't work out, you're also probably more capable of pivoting or of dealing with the repercussions because you're not gonna have to think about the response. You're just making yet again another snap decision that hopefully Mm -hmm. leads course correcting essentially. And there's yeah. no guarantee it's always going to be successful, but you know, again, you, you can never know. And that's one thing that COVID really taught me. It's like, I always used to think about maybe a three-year plan or a five-year plan. Man, that's a waste of time. You can't like, yeah. I, I plan maybe for the end of the summer at best. It's like, what are we going to do in the fall? I have no idea. We might be closed for six weeks or eight weeks in the fall because of another whatever. So <laughs> let's get through the summer. Worry about that then. Yeah, I think that, you know, surviving the pandemic required a certain amount of, again, resourcefulness, but also an an openness to the idea that, you know, regiment has gone out the window, you know, and a normal day is like a thing of the past. And as a matter of fact, you know, there was a time there where the new normal was something completely bizarre that, you know, if you would have asked anyone like, no, I don't think, you know, the vast majority of North Americans are going to be 
you know, getting sick and wearing masks and the restaurants are closing and so on and so forth. But I think now you're going to see, and I'm curious if you would agree that as restaurants either reopen or are simply created, do you think there will be more nimbleness to the strategy? Or do you think that people are just going to try and return to regimented behavior? Because there is something comforting about a regiment. But at the same time, I've never found that regimentation breeds creativity, you know? Hmm. I would say, based on last summer, the way it felt here anyway, in Halifax, people really just wanted to get back to normal. Yeah. People were just like, you know, we don't need to wear masks, don't need to be six feet apart. They just stopped caring. Obviously, some people did. But based on the people that came through the door here anyway, every day was just like Saturday, basically all summer, which was great. But man, people, I don't think people are gonna, we're not at the end yet. But I don't think people are going to retain a lot of this stuff Mm. for the rest of their lives, for example. Right. I think, give it a couple years, and it'll just be, wow, that was a crazy thing that happened. But we're sort of back to what it was before now. Obviously, some things will will remain, but maybe hospitals and stuff sure. will retain them a bit more. But restaurants, I don't know. I hope not. I hate plexiglass. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally understand that. So I'm reading your bio here, and I get asked all the time, chef, should I go to culinary school? And I say, well, I didn't, but it might be helpful. How do you feel about you know, going to school for culinary education? What's your opinion? I went to Holland College or the Culinary Institute of Canada. They try to brand it as. I definitely got a lot out of it, but I was in my early 20s when I went because I started cooking before I went to culinary school. So like, I knew how to hold a knife and flip an egg or whatever. There were definitely a lot of people that went straight out of high school that got effectively nothing out of it. It, it, you know, in my observation anyway, I don't think that I would have gotten to where I am now without it being perfectly honest. Do I think it's necessary? Definitely not. But I think if it's something you really want to do, you can kind of learn a lot of different styles and a lot of techniques pretty quickly, but you need to be willing to absorb them. If you're just doing it for the sake of going to post-secondary, because maybe there's social pressures to do so after high school, and you're not really driven to work in the industry, well, I don't think you're going to get a whole lot out of it. Well said. That's, that's my opinion. I like that. Yeah. And I, that's kind of the, what, or the way that I have answered that question is that, you know, myself, I'm a very hands-on learner. I need to see it. I need to smell it. I need to be in it. And then I'll absorb it. And I'll retain facts and figures. You know, I can talk about a, a, a cheese like it was a, you know, a hockey player and give you the stats and statistics on it, you know? Mm-hmm. But I have to taste that cheese, you know? I have to have my own relationship with it. And I think there are kind of two kinds of people, some that need to be instructed and others that need to discover. And mm-hmm. I found that I've always been more of a discovery-based learner. Mm-hmm. I guess it, it probably, I've never really thought about this, but playing into what you just said it depends on where on earth you are as well growing up in newfoundland there was a pretty limited amount of discovery to be had like i remember when i went to culinary school that was the first time i had ever seen fennel that was at the time basically unavailable in newfoundland if you're somewhere where food is a big part of i guess food is a big part of the newfoundland culture but a very specific kind of food but you know if you were living in europe or something and i think you could bounce around to a few kitchens and learn quite a lot pretty quickly if you chose to do so 
Yeah. At my restaurant that I had in Brooklyn, New York, it was so like popular. People would volunteer just to help and hang out and like be part of the crowd, you know, and like pick herbs or learn a skill or break down chickens or something like that. And then all the time, it was like clockwork. Somebody else would quit and they would be the first person that we would give the job to because they were already incorporated. And, you know, sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes they said, hey, you know, I, I just got this accounting job. You know, I'm moving on. But in the interim, they just had fun and enjoyed having a drink at the end of this shift and having a crew. And like, I don't know, it's like volunteering on a pirate ship. Does that sound fun? Yes, but not forever. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. do you find that like stages are kind of a thing of the past these days? A 100 percent. Yeah, 100 percent. For those of you listening and don't know what a stage is, because we're speaking the real chef language here, a stage is spelled like the word stage, but it's pronounced stage. And it basically is when uh, someone checks out your kitchen and you're also checking out their work ethic. And sometimes people will do that for a week or a month or a season or a day because you don't like their stage work. It's very, it was very popular in older kitchens and in brigade kitchens and in some of the greater kitchens of the world because surprise, surprise, it was free labor, but also it was free education. So it was kind of like a two-way street and kind of a way to get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. It was effectively a job interview in pretty much every kitchen that I worked in leading up until opening my own place, of course. But man, I think if we did that now, people would just, if they were like, oh, I need to come in and work for three hours unpaid just to see if you like me, they would just not even show up. My team here, and I'm very, very fortunate, everybody on this team is a, what else can I do? Is there anything else you can think of? And like every night, like things are, are spotless, things are put away. And it's just because they have that attitude of like, time is kind of irrelevant. We're already here. You know, let's, let's just put it back the way we found it, if not better, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm looking at Black Sheep and you are what I like to call a BLD, a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. We're um, open all day, every day. All day, every day. You know what? If I had my time back, I would have done one or the other. But we kind of went all in on that, and it's hard to take it away. <laughs> yeah, I think we're open like probably 15 hours most days. Or at least we wow. have people here for 15 hours every day, I think, once, you know, opening and closing. Yeah, it's impressive. How do you feel about brunch? You know what? That was our bread and butter for a long time, um, and kind of still is. That was sort of our original plan. No one was really doing brunch well in the area that we originally opened. You know, they had some franchise stuff, but there weren't any really good brunch spots. Whereas in the north end of Halifax, there were a couple really solid brunch spots. We were like, well, let's do a wicked brunch, do it well, and the people will come. And they did. And that was definitely busier than our nighttime business for a good while. Once we moved down to this new location, that has changed a little bit. Because we're, we're just in a very different neighborhood now. But brunch on the weekends, you know, we often have a wait list. Inside, we have 120 seats. Wow. And we'll still have wait lists pretty much every Saturday, Sunday. But how do you feel about brunch? Because <laughs> some cooks well, like... I'm not poaching the eggs. Okay. <laughs> but, no, the guy does a role in the kitchen. Someone is just poaching eggs for brunch. They, they don't seem to mind too much once they get really good at it. But people that come and work here, they know what they're signing up for. I think I know a lot of cooks and a lot of chefs hate brunch, but we just have a team that does it. And they basically get to leave work at like 
four o'clock every day. That's pretty sweet. I don't know if we got lucky or what, but people are totally down to cook brunch here. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like pulling teeth around here, man. Um, I <laughs> promise you. Uh, and I run a ramen shop. So like we're open from 11 to two. It's like the cushiest shift and all of the eggs have already been cooked, you know, mm. days in advance because they're marinated in the ramen, but people still right. like it for brunch. So say somebody wanted to be chief egg poacher for you. Mm-hmm. It's their dream job. What sort of uh, qualifications, but also what sort of personality traits are you looking for for a chief egg poacher? <laughs> um, I mean, we don't we don't call the job that necessarily, but because they generally do other tasks aside from that, like prep work. I mean, but personality wise, for the brunch crew, no one is that serious. It's a very chill vibe most of the time. That's a big one. I don't. I, I want the kitchen to be a positive place. Experience. I'm definitely willing to give people a shot if they've worked in a high volume environment, even if they don't necessarily have sort of high level knife skills or whatever that, you know, a lot of maybe higher end places would be looking for. If you can pump food out fast, you know, our menu is designed in such a way that there are a lot of tasks and a lot of stations where the finesse is in the prep and then you're just pumping it out. And that's on purpose because that's kind of the only way to run brunch successfully, in my opinion. You know, yeah. you, you spend time prepping the stuff and like, yeah, you put care and, and finesse into that. But then when it comes to service, you're just kind of searing, reheating, putting it on a plate and pumping it out, making sure the plates are clean, of course. But it's got to be real fast for brunch because people are often only having one plate. It's not like they're having an app and a main and a dessert and they're there for a while. They want to be in and out and sometimes less than an hour. So as as you know, it's a very different style. And as you mentioned, a lot of people don't want to do it. Once you're in there, it's, it's kind of fun. When it comes to the culinary... Yeah, I'm with you. And ramen is very much the same way. We prep for yeah. infinity and we cook mm-hmm. for two minutes. You know, like literally yeah. all we're doing is like the noodles are, is the only thing that needs cooked, like from start mm-hmm. to finish. And it takes two minutes and then boom, pow, you know. Yeah. We've got eight noodle uh, slots. And so we can... In, in general, at like top speed, we can do like a ramen every, you know, two minutes on average by the end of it, you know? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. insane. Thanks. Uh, we we I, usually like when we're on, when all wheels are spinning, like, man, we're hitting like nine to 12 minutes for brunch plates. Wow. When we're, you know, we'll, we'll have 80 guests walk in at basically the same time and we can generally keep up with it. Sometimes, obviously, there are extraneous circumstances where things get a bit behind, but under 20 minutes is pretty much always the case which that's, I, I think for a restaurant our size doing the food that we do it's pretty top-notch that's awesome yeah. this led me to another question mm-hmm. in life are you a prep heavy cook light or in life are you a prep light cook hard oh my man i feel like that's impossible to answer because it depends on which phase in my life it's been current a lot phase. of current phase i'm more of like try to prep hard barely get by, try to cook hard, also barely get by. Tread <laughs> water. <laughs> yeah, that is a way, for sure. Yeah, just constantly in the weeds. Uh, you're telling me I am perpetually mm-hmm. in the weeds. So mm-hmm. you seem to be kind of like a, a chef's chef. I mean, that's what I did my entire adult life until we opened the restaurant. I don't cook anymore. I still have influence over the menu. Like everything that goes on the menu, I'll taste it. And the, the sous chef and the chef, like we, we have a chef and a sous chef that 
come up with all the menu items and manage the restaurant kitchen, but I'll taste everything and give my feedback. We'll chat about stuff. I do occasionally call the line in a pinch, you know, someone's sick or, or whatever, and that's not really the goal, but you get it. It happens. Yeah. What do you do for like work-life balance? What's your thing? Oh man. I don't know if I'm the right person to ask for that. I understand. If I want to really take time off, I basically have to leave the city. I get out of town, whether even if it's just like an hour and a half away, because otherwise, you know, it's like, Hey, you can call me, but I'm, I can't come down and fix this problem. I'm not, I'm not in the city. Uh, I'll try to troubleshoot it with people. You know, you're always working if you, if you own your own business, but I make a point of just getting an Airbnb and going out of town, traveling. You know, I love going to cities to eat. I'll go to Montreal, go to Toronto to just eat at restaurants for a few days. Other than that, I'm here every day for at least a few hours, but also like, you know, just the, the nature of my current life situation. I, I also kind of schedule that, make a plan, make a schedule. Like I will commit to these hours and these days. Obviously, sometimes it has to be a little flexible, but I really try to adhere to that. But there's really not a lot of room for spontaneity. Yeah, I, I do hear you there. All right. So the final question that we ask is, what advice would you give to someone who is looking to get into this industry? Can I just say, don't do it? <laughs> yes. Um, no. Mm, that's really tough. I mean, on one hand, you know, I feel like the industry is changing a lot. And I feel like the sexism and bullying and stuff like that is dwindling. Definitely, at least in my restaurant and kitchens that I've worked in, it's, that's been a priority to make sure that wasn't going on. So I would say, if you end up in a situation like that, man, don't, don't put up with that move on because there's a lot of kitchens where you'll actually be treated with respect or, or front of house for that matter. I guess that's, we've just been talking so much kitchen stuff. I am only thinking on that. Yeah. On those lines, but uh front of house as well. Like you definitely see that front of house. You see it from guests as well. And we just have zero tolerance for that. Definitely know your worth. Don't put up with people trying to put you down or bullying you or anything, but also, uh, you know, if you want to do this, figure out what the commitments are because it's often night heavy, weekend heavy, holiday heavy. If you're not prepared to do that, there's a ceiling to how far you can go for sure. Thank you for listening to Resto Talk, a podcast brought to you by Touch Bistro. I'm Justin Warner. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and we'll catch you on the next one. Black Sheep Restaurant is located at 1496 Lower Water Street in Halifax, Nova Scotia. For more information, visit them at blacksheephalifax.com.